Well, good morning, New City family. Great to see all of you here on campus. And for those of you joining online, we're grateful to have you as well this morning. I want to make a final invitation to join me tonight and our team at our Matthews East campus off of Sam Newell Road. We're going to be talking about our Idlewild campus that's going to be launching this fall. And I want to encourage you to be there. I have so many exciting things to share with you tonight. But we're also going to be worshiping together and praying. So even if you or your family would say, you know, I'm not sure that we're called to be a part of that this fall, I want to invite you to come tonight just to join together as a church family to worship and to pray together and for us to share together this wonderful thing that God's calling us to. As all of you heard on the video that played across our campuses today, this is a moment for us as a church to reach into a different part of our city, which we're so excited about. And by reaching this neighborhood, by being part of what God is already doing in this neighborhood, we really believe that we have a chance to, to touch the nations. As you've heard me said, uh, say, 40 different na nationalities and languages are spoken within the walls of Idlewild Elementary School. So we just think it's an, a, an incredibly important opportunity for us as a church, and we're really excited, and we want to share it with you tonight, 5 p.m., so I hope that you'll join us to be there. I, I don't have the words for, for uh, plan for what I want to say here, but I want to say something about what's happened the last 24 hours in our country. Something evil is happening, and it's nothing less than domestic terrorism, fueled by hate and anger and ignorance, all tools of the enemy from the pit of hell. And I want to say on behalf of our church, to all of our Hispanic brothers and sisters who are part of our community and who live in our city, that we stand with you, and that we love you, and that we value you. And I don't know any other thing that can bring us together in this country except for Jesus. He's the only hope that we have, and he's all that we need. So my prayer this morning is that this will begin with us as a church, as a community of Christ followers, that we would speak out against evil in our country of all kinds. It's not a political issue, guys. It's a gospel issue. And we have to be willing to speak out and to live out the gospel in front of other people. So God help us to do that this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, we know that you have promised to be close to the brokenhearted. And so we do pray together as a church, as one body, that you would be close to those who have lost so much in the last 24 hours. God, would you help us as a church, as followers of Jesus, to believe and to live out the hope of the gospel in front of our neighbors, our family members, our city, and our world. Would you begin with us the work of reconciliation between one another? We fix our eyes on you, Jesus, because you're the only answer. You're the author and the perfecter of our faith. And it's in your name that we ask this together. And all God's people said, amen. amen. So our key verse for this series that we're in, entitled Sent, our journey through the book of Acts, is Acts chapter 13, verse 4. It begins with this. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, the first part of the verse says, they went. 
Uh, Paul and Barnabas and their team went on the very first missionary journey. And if you've missed the last two weekends with us at New City, we've covered this first missionary journey that takes place in Acts 13 and 14. So I want to encourage you to go online or on the app and catch up with us. You can find all the messages there. After 17 long years between the ascension of Jesus in Acts chapter 1 and this first missionary journey that's captured in Acts chapters 13 and 14, 17 years have gone by, guys. A long period of time. And, and the church is finally beginning to fulfill this final scope of Jesus' instruction to his disciples to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and remember the fourth one? To the ends of the earth, to all the nations. And again, this very first missionary journey, this sending out of Paul and Barnabas represents the church beginning in earnest to fulfill this final scope of Jesus' instruction. So they journey some 900 miles, if you'll remember, in this first missionary journey. They start at Antioch, the city of Antioch, which we said was the third most important Roman city next to Rome itself and Alexandria was Antioch, a city that was very diverse with a half a million people. And that church sends the first missionary journey out. They cover 900 miles going to all kinds of different cities and towns to all kinds of different peoples, Jews and Gentiles alike, proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel. And they do a circle and come all the way back to where? To Antioch. And they begin to share their stories, Paul and Barnabas do, about what happened and how God opened a door to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, to receive Jesus and begin following him. And they're so excited to share these stories. Uh, this is a moment for the church. And it's a moment for us to realize as a local church that you can't outgive God. You can't. Sometimes people think that the more that we give to people in our community and our world outside the four walls of our church, the less there is for us as a church. But that's not how God does math. It's not a zero-sum game. If we give 52% over here that we only have 48% for ourselves, that's not how God does math. The more you give, the more God gives. The more you serve, the more God pours into us to be funnels of his grace and his love to other people. And we see this right here in the early church with this first missionary journey. The sending church, the church at Antioch is actually what? They're built up as they send out. As they send their best into all of the world, they're actually built up through the teaching and the testimony of Barnabas and Paul as they come back and encourage them with all that God has done. And that's the same for us as a local church expression. So let's just take a moment here, a quick time out in our, in our journey to celebrate what God's done in this first missionary journey with uh, Barnabas and with Paul. It's an incredible moment for the church of fulfilling uh, all that Jesus had told them to do. They're sharing stories. People are coming to Jesus. And then we get to the very first word in our text today, Acts chapter 15. We get to this very first word and things begin to change. It's a conjunction. You remember what a conjunction does? A conjunction connects phrases or words or clauses. So remember a schoolhouse rock, conjunction, junction, what's your function? It's connecting two different things that have happened. And this very first word in Acts chapter 15, at least in the ESV, is the conjunction but. So it's connecting what's happening in the first missionary journey, chapters 13 and 14, with what's getting ready to happen in chapter 15. And this simple conjunction that starts out our text today in Acts 15 could have led to a major malfunction in the church and indeed the whole movement of the gospel. I was really proud of that sentence this week when I was writing. This simple conjunction could have led to a major malfunction. I told Jen, she was like, yeah, that, that's great, babe. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> um, so let me say it a different way. 
Let me use the words of a great commentator and writer, John Stott, a great theologian. He bluntly clarifies this latest opposition to the advancement of the gospel that we find in Acts 15 this way. He says, it was not some Jewish cultural practices which were at stake here, but the very truth of the gospel and the future of the church. That's what's at stake here in Acts chapter 15, our text. And before we jump into it together, let me remind you about the pattern of the book of Acts that we're studying. The pattern all throughout the book of Acts, and many of you will remember that this, is the advancement of the gospel. The gospel goes forth as people live out the gospel, as Christ followers through their words and their actions display the gospel in front of other people. The kingdom of God advances. And then opposition comes against the gospel. If you live for Jesus, if you live on mission, if you live for purpose, you can expect opposition from the enemy. You've heard me say this before. Some of you may not believe that there's a real devil, that there's a real enemy, but that doesn't keep him from believing in you. He knows you exist. And when you live your life on purpose and on mission, what God's created you for, you can expect opposition. I've heard some believers say, you know, these things aren't going right in my life. I'm, I'm experiencing opposition. Uh, things aren't going the way that I thought they were. God must not be in this. Allow me and to encourage you to read the scriptures. That people who were living absolutely on mission and on purpose faced the stiffest resistance and opposition. Opposition oftentimes proves the advancement of the gospel in our own hearts and through our lives. So the pattern of the book of Acts is the advancement of the gospel. Opposition arises from the enemy to stand against the kingdom of God and the gospel. And God miraculously overcomes that opposition in various ways that we call only God's stories. Miracles. Miracles occur in our own lives and through our lives as the gospel is advanced to overcome these various oppositions that come against the very kingdom and advancement of the gospel. And then opposition arises again. This is the pattern. Advancement, opposition, God coming through. Advancement, opposition, God coming through. And this repeats over and over again. And when we get to our text today, you're going to see it again. As, as this first missionary journey goes out and all these wonderful things are happening, here comes the opposition again. And I think you're going to be surprised at where it comes from. Acts chapter 15, if you have a copy of the scriptures, turn there with me or look on your phones. It's preloaded on our app, the text and the notes and the outline right there for you to follow along. Acts chapter 15, and I'm going to start by reading verses 1 through 5. The word of God to you today. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Verse 3. So being sent, there's our word, on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. 
What is the issue here? The very issue at which the advancement of the gospel and the future of the church hangs on. It's nothing less than what is the essence of Jesus and the gospel of Christ. And so let's start with some of these men who come from Judea and begin to teach in verse 1, Acts chapter 15. These were men who were not sent on behalf of the church. They took it upon themselves to come to Antioch to these new Gentile believers and to begin to share with them what they think is required for salvation. Specifically, they, they say you got to be circumcised, just like the custom of Moses, just like we were. Now, don't miss this. You've got to become, this is what they were saying, you've got to become like us in order to be a part of us. You've got to become like us if you want to be a part of us. These men were believers who were former members of the Pharisaical party, the same Pharisees that spoke against Jesus. And some 20 years later, they're still known as Pharisees. You would think they would go through a a rebranding exercise of some kind after everything that happened, but they don't. And to put it bluntly, they're legalists. They're legalists that, that believe that their customs and practices need to be followed now by everybody who follows Jesus. And so they share their particular brand of customs and and culture with these new believers. And if we're not careful, it's easy to read these pages and go, how could they do that? But if we're not careful, we can do the same thing. When we meet Jesus, we still bring our customs and our culture with us. And we've got to be able to separate what is essential for salvation and what is not. What is the way and what is my way or a way? And, and these folks are having a hard time doing that. So they come and they teach this. Unless you are circumcised by the law of Moses as it pertains to the customs, you cannot be saved. Underline that in your Bible or highlight it on your phones. They're essentially saying you can't be a Christian unless you do these things. It's, it's probably worth stating again and stating every single week in various forms from up front here. The very essence of the gospel of, of, of Jesus Let me say it for each of you again, that through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, God has fully accomplished salvation for us. That's the gospel. Through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, God has fully accomplished salvation for you and for me. 99% accomplished? No. Fully accomplished salvation. And anything other than that falls woefully short. Any other teaching that anyone would give you falls woefully short of what the essence of the gospel really is. It becomes spiritual elitism. And that's what's happening here in our passage. You can smell it off the pages. It reeks. It's people who are arrogant and thinking that they're better than other people. That you have to do what I do in order to meet Jesus. I've scribbled this on a napkin so many times, this equation that I want to share with you right now. And it was shared with me. And maybe it will encourage you today and hopefully it will stick with you. Jesus plus something equals nothing. Maybe the most important equation that you could ever learn. Jesus plus something equals nothing. But here's the great news, friends. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus is enough. You don't have to add to Jesus. His work was completed and finished on our behalf. And here's the thing, moreover, when I begin to add to Jesus, when I think that I have to add to Jesus, I'm actually subtracting from the completed work of the cross. 
I'm saying that Jesus wasn't enough. And here's the thing, everybody watch me. If Jesus isn't enough in your life right now, nothing ever will be. If Jesus isn't enough, nothing ever will be. Listen, that new guy that you're dating, he doesn't stand a chance if Jesus isn't enough. Your kids will never be enough if Jesus isn't enough. Your job will never be enough. But here's the beautiful news of the gospel. Jesus is enough. You know the final words of Buddha? You know what the final words of Buddha were? Strive unceasingly. They stand in sharp contrast to the final words of Jesus, don't they? It is finished. The completed work of salvation on our behalf. So what should this inform us? It should inform us that it's only by grace through my simple trust and faith that I come to salvation. And that's affirmed over and over and over and over again in the scriptures. And it should also humble me, right? That there's nothing that I could do to deserve this or to earn it. It should put me in a posture of humility towards God and towards other people. And that's not what's happening here from these teachers. They come with their spiritual elitism. And it's worth saying today that if you think you're better than somebody else, if you think you're better than somebody else because the color of your skin, because of where you were born, because of your job, because of your, your finances, because of anything, you're wrong. You're wrong. God loves people just like us, broken people, each and every one of us. And God help us if we think we need to add something to accomplish salvation or that we need to do something to accomplish the purposes of God or that God needs us. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 1.15. Here is a trustworthy saying that is worth understanding and deserves full acceptance. Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Speaking of Paul and Barnabas, they don't sit silently as this heresy is being taught to their new brothers and sisters, do they? Look at verse 2 and verse 3. No small dissension or discussion. We'll have to watch that one on the replay in heaven about what Paul and Barnabas actually say to these teachers who come up from Judea and are teaching in Antioch this Jesus plus something. They speak out against it. They stand up. And think about the wonderful irony here. Paul is the one who's speaking to Pharisees. Some of these Pharisees that he probably journeyed with as a Pharisee himself. And who better equipped now to go toe-to-toe with these legalists but Paul himself. And he begins to do that. And the church recognizes this and they commission, they send Paul and Barnabas and some others up to Jerusalem to debate this issue and answer this question of, is Jesus enough? And when they get to Jerusalem, look at verse 5. Uh, th- some other believers, look at the word that's used here. Verse 5, Acts chapter 15. There were some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees who rose up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them. And pay attention to the words here. To order them to keep the law of Moses. You need to order these people to do these things. Is that what Jesus said in the Great Commission? Go into the world, go into all the world and make disciples, ordering them to do all these things? No, teaching them with humility and truth and grace. That's not the spirit of this at all. 
It's ordering these people who are lesser than us, that they have to uh, live up to our customs and our way of doing things. And they go even further here, don't they? Did you notice? They don't just say that you've got to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses. They double down, don't they, in verse 5. And they say not only do these, these people need to be circumcised, but they need to do what? They need to keep the law of Moses. <laughs> they need to keep all the law. So what's the point of Jesus? If we could fulfill the law, if we could do it ourselves, if we could bridge the gap between us and God, why did Jesus have to come and die? What was the point? This is the very essence of the gospel. And I want you to pay attention to this, brothers and sisters. These are believers. These are people within the church that have forgotten the very essence of the gospel. And this is why we have to preach the gospel of Jesus in its beauty and its completeness in our own hearts every single day. We have to remind ourselves of the gospel and that we are fully loved by God, not because of our works, but only because of his grace. So the council convenes, and it's not a formal council that met on a regular basis. It's a collection of elders, it's a collection of the apostles, it's a collection of other leaders, and they, they gather from all around to debate this all-important issue, is Jesus enough? And I can't read the whole text to you this morning, but I hope that you will. Verses 6 through 21 captures this debate and discussion that happens with this council, this group of elders and leaders that are debating, is Jesus enough? And I want to highlight three things to you, and I hope you'll circle it and underline it in your Bible. Three different people that stand up in this argument, if you will, to decide, is Jesus enough? And the first is a familiar name. Look at verse 7 with me. Peter. Just like in Acts 2, when Peter stands up and preaches the very first sermon in the New Testament church, he stands up again here in Acts chapter 15 on behalf of the gospel. And did you know that this is the last time that we read Peter's name in the book of Acts? The leadership baton is truly being passed from Peter to the apostle Paul here. This is the final scene of Peter, and what a final scene it is of him standing up once again for the essence of the gospel. And you need to know this as well, that Peter wasn't a formal part of the leadership in Jerusalem anymore. There are other people who were leading in Jerusalem. Most commentators believe that Peter himself actually traveled from another city where he was having his own missionary journey to come and to be a part of this council and to add his voice to the gospel. I want you to pay attention to verse 11. After Peter begins to speak and he, he shares the essence of the gospel, and by the way, he says, we're trying to put on these Gentiles a, a yoke of the law that we couldn't keep. We couldn't keep the law. And Jesus was enough for us, and now we're putting this law and legalism on other people. And he concludes his argument by saying this in verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved, listen to this, through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. Here's the beauty of the gospel, brothers and sisters, that there is no more they and we, it becomes us. That the ground at the cross is level, that we're all included because of the grace of Jesus, and that's what Peter wants to stand up for. And then Paul and Barnabas have their moment. So first it's Peter, now it's Paul and Barnabas, and they just get one verse, verse 12. 
And they begin to share with the council all the wonderful things that God did on the very first missionary journey. They share all of Acts 13 and 14 with the council. You're not going to believe, guys, all the doors that God opened to Gentiles and how the gospel went forth and people from all around began to accept and to follow Jesus. They tell the stories. And it's so important here. And if you're taking notes, tell your story. That's what I want you to write down in your Bible or in your notes. You've got to remember your own story of coming to Jesus. And tell the stories of other people that you've had the privilege to minister and to walk with. Stories are so important. It's one thing to have something written on a a, a page, right? A list of uh, doctrine or whatever. That's important. But you want to know what's even more effective? I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Jesus did something in my life. And I want to tell you about it. That's what Paul and Barnabas are doing. They're sharing stories of how people's lives have been changed, and we have to do the same. And then the final person to stand up here is none other than James. Look at it with me here, verses 13 through 21. James has his moment with the council. Now, James is the leader of the council. This is the the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. And it states very clearly in Acts 15 that he was the leader of that group of leaders. He He was the capital L leader here. And he's speaking on behalf of the council. In fact, he's the decider, if you will. But he's also, James, this James, is also whom? Do you remember? Do you remember who this is? This is James, the brother of whom? Jesus. And guess what James says? My brother was enough. My big brother was enough. His sacrifice for us was enough. Now, for those of you who have siblings, if you can get your sibling or your siblings to say that you're enough, you're doing something. What an apologetic, what a defense this is of the gospel. Jesus' own younger brother, James, who grew up with him, who saw him, is saying, Jesus is enough. He's not only my brother, he's my Lord and he's my Savior. And he's enough for other people And he continues by saying this in verse 19. He says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. We shouldn't trouble people who turn to God. We shouldn't become an impediment to people meeting Jesus and coming to Jesus. Yes, we need to disciple them. Yes, we need to encourage them. Yes, we need to train and teach them. But we shouldn't stand in the way of people meeting Jesus for who he really is. We shouldn't trouble people with our own customs and our own ideas about how they should live and how they should come to Christ. And not only do they decide this together, but they they codify it in a letter. They write a letter to the Gentile churches and to the believers themselves, and they send it through the hands of Paul and Barnabas and other leaders. Uh, Listen to what James says in verses 25 and 26. He says in Acts 15, it seemed good to us. Who is us? The council. It seemed good to us having come to one accord. We're in agreement on this question about Jesus. To choose men and to send them to you with our beloved, listen to this language, with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this letter instructed the Gentiles among everything else. The headline was, Jesus is enough. And then he also included a couple of instructions for discipleship and Christian living. Now, I want to make a distinction here as we finish. What he wasn't doing was adding to what was required for salvation. 
What he was doing, what the whole council was doing, was giving some instruction for, for wise Christian living. And so he says, we've decided, we don't want to add anything else to your plate but this as you follow Jesus. You need to abstain from food that was sacrificed to idols or was strangled, and you need to flee from sexual immorality. If you do those things, you'll do well. Farewell. That's the letter, short and sweet. He gives these two instructions about Christian living, which you need to know that a major part of that was how the Gentile believers could now take steps towards their Jewish believers, their brothers and sisters who came out of Judaism, who it was still offensive for them to eat food that was sacrificed or strangled in a certain way or was killed in a certain way. That was still offensive to them. So what James is essentially saying is you need to take a step towards your brothers and sisters, just like they've taken a step towards you. What James was saying, what the council was saying here was it's not Jesus plus. That's been decided. Jesus is enough. Now we're going to talk about how to experience table fellowship together of, of different ethnicities, different races, different nationalities, different groups of people being able to sit at the table and sup together to have community with one another, to take a step towards one another. And this is wonderful instruction for us as well, that we need to take steps towards our brothers and sisters to, to receive and to give fellowship and community with one another. And, and, and let me finish here, verses 30 and 31. When they send this letter and, and, and they give this instruction through the hands of Barnabas and through Paul and others, this was their response. Verse 30 and 31, so they went out. They were sent out. They went to Antioch, and they gathered the congregation together, and they delivered the letter to the congregation. They read it out loud, and here was the response. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. They rejoiced at the message that Jesus is enough. The issue of Acts 15, the issue of Jesus has been resolved. And here's the great news, dear friends. It's been resolved for us too. It's been resolved for you. Jesus is enough. Bottom line, Jesus is enough for you. Jesus is enough for each and every person. His sacrifice, his life was enough. We don't have to add anything else to it. And now Jesus, here's the great news as well. Jesus now invites us because of that sacrifice, because the work has been finished. He invites us into relationship with him. He invites us into table fellowship with him, not by our works, but only by his grace. So we're going to celebrate the Lord's table today across all of our campuses. And I pray that it's a, a visible reminder of this bottom line that Jesus is enough and that he is inviting each and every one of you, every single person, he's inviting you to enjoy table fellowship with him, not through your works or your meritorious behavior, but only by his grace. To him alone be the glory today. Let's pray together. Father, today we thank you for the gift of your word that never returns void. And I pray that it would have every purpose and work that's desired by you, that it would be fulfilled in our hearts today. We fix our eyes today on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And we proclaim together today that you are enough, Jesus. You're enough. We're so grateful for that.
Over the next few moments of silence, I want to encourage you to prepare your hearts to come to the table today. Created me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, O oh God, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Would you restore unto each of us today the joy of our salvation and renew a right spirit within us? It's in your name that we pray this together, Jesus' name. Amen.